Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas and you know exactly who is joining me, Marian Azevedo. How are you, Marian? How's your 2023 so far? You know, it's going pretty good. I still maintain that I'm going to be more optimistic about this year yes. and trying to keep that upbeat attitude. So going well. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm going to check in with you on a monthly basis on the optimism <laughs> meter because <laughs> I know people are interested. We also have Becca Skutak. Becca, how are you? Good, good. How are you? I'm tired. You know, it's been a weird week, but I feel like as our script shows, there's been so much that we've all been writing about, gossiping about, slacking about. So honestly, looking forward to walking it through with you and Marianne. No, definitely. Everyone, I don't know, gearing up for the long weekend here in the US, the one less news day next week, I guess. That actually might be it. So I'll give you guys a high level what we're going to get to, and then we'll jump into our deals of the week. So we're starting with looking at Cartograph Ventures, Inflow, as well as layoffs in a lawsuit at a cap table management tool that a startup you know definitely leans on. Then we're going to get into our first theme, which is all about fintech M&A, which is the good and the bad this week. Theme two is chat GPT and the generative AI boom. And we're going to end with a substack that has gotten our attention, but not for necessarily exciting journalistic reasons. But let's start with Cartograph Ventures. Becca, a VC firm caught your eyes and they're raising a debut fund. Tell us all about it. Yeah. Cartograph Ventures is going to be an Austin-based seed stage consumer VC fund. And that's all great. It's always good to see funds raising in emerging markets and things like that. But what stood out to me about this one in particular is that the fund is being led by an ex-Jewel executive, Alexander Cantwell, which I'll be honest, I don't know anything specifically about him. I do a little researching. I don't see him tied to anything particularly egregious Mm -hmm. relating to Jewel. But I definitely thought this was interesting because I could see it going one of two ways. One, People love when operators become VCs. LPs love that. We've seen a lot of funds over the last few years raised by former operators. So on the one hand, he could do very well. But on the other hand, a lot of people, Jewel left like a weird taste in their mouth. Either it's they got partially burned by the investment. And I know this one was particularly interesting too, because a lot of LPs were pretty open about being burned here, which until what happened with FTX this year, you don't see that as often. The other thing is I know just chatting with some people in the industry, just Jules fields, just the thought it got high schoolers addicted to vaping. And like, obviously, that's not exactly Alexander Campbell's fault. But it is weird. I am curious kind of how this will go because there is so much evidence on both sides that it could go well or it could go poorly. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna sound really ignorant right now. And that's okay. But like, is Jules still even in like business? I mean, I don't even know, to be honest with you. Yes, what it actually is today. It's such a shell. I mean, it's still I think worth a handful of billions of dollars, but nothing like what it was. And I know it feels like every other month, there's like another flavor like up on the chopping block. Is it going to be made illegal? Are they going to stop selling certain types of jewel pods you use for the smoking device? So I just, I don't know. It just doesn't really seem like a solid company now. But yeah, it's still operating in some capacity. I think like around Jewel, especially, it became this company similar to a lot of these high profile meltdowns, even we work, even though it's a dramatically different situation. They became like synonymous with two different narratives. And you get, I guess you just kind of get to pick like on one end, it became synonymous with a failure and people losing a lot of money. On the other end, Jewel did create a new category 
of a company. Like it was this leader synonymous with high growth, venture capital. And it is one of those weird things to me where like people don't really care as much as I think they should. And I think you're alluding to this too, Becca, that like what like a technical failure on that front on succeeding in such a big venture capital field way, what that means to your like your future prospects. Because I feel like I've seen a lot of the Jewel executives have soft landings, which I think is actually fine. Jewel's co-founder, I was digging this up. Jewel's, yeah, Jewel's CEO is now the president of Chobani, the yogurt company. Oh, which, you know, I didn't know that. <laughs> these people aren't disappearing. They're going yeah. into high profile roles, probably with big paychecks. And I do think they get to ride off of kind of just creating a new product and showing that, which I think investors love too. So clearly this new fund that you're talking about is going to have no trouble raising. And also for sure, I mean, if you're looking for a team that knows how to help scale a company, I mean, the Jewel guys are definitely going to be the ones you want in the room. That company scaled so fast that there definitely is value for them looking to invest in startups. It's just always interesting Mm -hmm. because of the category the company was in. Right. Like it was a company that VC firms literally have clauses against investing in because they touch tobacco, nicotine, all those things. Mm -hmm. The vice clause, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, let's move to our next deal of the week because it's a little less controversial, but really impactful. Marianne, we don't talk about cognitive behavioral therapy on this podcast enough. Mm -hmm. No, we don't. And this startup caught my eye for a couple of reasons. It's called Inflow. It's based out of London. And it's developed a platform to manage ADHD using cognitive behavioral therapy techniques. It's raised $11 million in Series A funding. And it caught my eye mainly because ADHD is such a huge problem. It's estimated that it impacts as much as 10% of the global population. I would venture to say it, it could be even more than that, to be honest with you. I think that a lot of people suffer from it. And there are some stigmas around it, right? Mm-hmm. And not everybody wants to take medicine to treat it either. So I think Inflow's offering is their app. It's a self-help app and it's designed to help people manage their ADHD through daily exercises and challenges, things like that with community support. It's an interesting model, costs about $200 a year for an annual subscription. And I do like that part of the founding team is a clinical psychologist who has more than a decade's experience treating ADHD in children and adults. Is it fair to compare this company? I thought about price point and kind of like the self-therapy world, like to Headspace and Calm, or does it feel a little bit more medical, for lack of better phrasing? Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, I think they're similar in that there's a mindfulness component. There is this app that's trying to help people treat certain conditions like anxiety, maybe, and others, in this case, ADHD. I think there's some similarities there. The clinical psychologist certainly is, is gives it some more credibility, I think. I'm mostly curious, though, just about adoption. You know, I want, I don't know how many people are going to be willing to go this route, because I feel like part of the problem with having ADHD is sticking with anything long term. So I think their biggest challenge is going to be to get people with ADHD to A, try it out and B, stick with it. One of the things that stood out to me about this company is I know the broader conversation about ADHD treatment, there's all this discourse about how, especially if it's ADHD in a kid, that they're so quick to push medication Mm -hmm. and putting kids on this kind of medication they'll likely have to be on forever once they start and how there's so many other ways to approach it. And it was good to see that this isn't the case. Like this is a startup that's looking to kind of take a different type of therapy, be the focus for helping people who have ADHD, which is really refreshing. I mean, we can all think of all the stories from last year in 2021, the huge mental health startups that are getting slapped on the wrist. I wish it was more than that about um, kind of over prescribing a lot of these really addictive substances, which if you need, of course, you should take. But it was really refreshing to see a startup being like, okay, we're going to approach this from a different 
angle. I know Cerebral similarly went through a lot of questions around how it prescribes. And I mean, and it's it's a really good point because like, I will say like, I read the story and I was similarly excited about this like more holistic way of dealing with ADHD, the, the condition. At the same time, like, I don't know, I get like because of last year and because of these high profile examples, I get so bored when these companies become venture backed and have the pressure to hyperscale because what if it is medication that causes people to stick with something or to, and I mean, I don't know enough about that to say that in a thoughtful way. I, all I'm saying is if that's what people have been trained to look at as a solution, I just hope that Inflow has enough of a focus that it sticks to cognitive behavioral therapy and doesn't necessarily lean into a world that has been proven to be problematic. <laughs> Good point. The only other thing that I wanted to bring up with this, Marianne, is like, it actually reminds me of an episode we did last year, maybe, which is like mental health focused startups have never had a higher bar. Mm -hmm. Inflow is doing a ton of different things that it's saying will help it differentiate from its bigger competitors because it's doing diagnostics, coaching, and telehealth. It's acquiring companies. If for a young company, I don't know if it's just me, but it is very active and it's it's trying to do a lot for how old it is. Yeah, I was I was intrigued by that telehealth acquisition and component. And I'm curious to see how that will play out. Sometimes you worry that the startups are trying to do too much too soon. So hopefully that's not the case here. Well, speaking of startups doing too much, Carta is a company that has been in the news throughout the years due to some of the lawsuits around it. And most recently, Connie Loizos from our team reported on a CTO lawsuit. So I'll try and keep it high level before we get into the second part of the news. But what you need to know is that Carta is suing its former CTO, Jerry Talton, for damages, citing, quote, his wrongful and illegal acts as an executive of Carta. It includes the discrimination and sexual harassment of at least nine women, according to a Carta spokesperson. To me, it's kind of this first time that Carta fired this person and is now suing him, which is kind of like this double cut at this person, which can be interpreted in a ton of ways. And things are currently allegations. Nothing has been decided. But I did want to pause there because it is one of the highest profile lawsuits I've seen around a company that has raised over $1 billion in venture capital money. It's not a small startup. It's true. It's usually when, when there are people or executives fired from high profile startups, they're the ones filing the lawsuits, yeah. right? <laughs> That's what we usually see. Okay, so actually I was talking to a VC about this and they compared it to McDonald's, which recently former McDonald's CEO Steve Easterbrook was fined by the SEC for misleading investors and lying about a bunch of different things. He was originally fired in 2019 for a consensual relationship with an employee, which did violate the company's policy. So it was just a separate example of like what that looks like. We don't often see it in tech. I think it's such a big way. My big question off of this is, I'm curious how Carta became aware of some of these allegations, because I think just following, as we mentioned, we don't talk about this a lot in tech and startups, but I feel like when it has happened, it's like one person came forward. Or the person who's being let go had like one inappropriate relationship. In this case, it's nine. And I'm curious if like Carta found out about this over time and like built a case or maybe stuff happened fast and they, they also acted fast. We obviously have no idea kind of what that timeline looks like. But I think the fact that it was nine people just stood out to me kind of on the first read because in our world, it's usually like one and done or like one and done. And then more people come out and say, oh, that happened to me too. But mm -hmm. Nine. Nine's like a big number. It's a big number. I, to your point, I haven't seen this scale of allegations in a very, very long time, if ever. And it definitely raises questions around Carta's culture. And we know that Carta has gone through lawsuits in the past. Carta's former marketing VP sued Carta in 2020 over gender discrimination 
after she also spearheaded a report on unequal pay. So there's a lot of questions around managers and how the culture is working at Carta. And then the only other small bit I'll add before we move on is that Carta did lay off 10% of staff. Long story short, there's been a lot of distractions at this company, whether it's former lawsuits, current lawsuits, and layoffs. And I think there's some competitors that we should be paying attention to. I'm thinking about AngelList Venture the most because they recently launched something that put it into square competition with Carta. Yeah, I mean, and actually, I think this whole space is getting hotter and hotter by the day. I covered, this leads us well into our our first theme, right? I covered this week a couple of M&As in the fintech space that related to equity management. So it's interesting that these things are happening at the same time that Carta's laying off and, and like getting all this really negative publicity. So for one thing, Fidelity made its first acquisition in seven years this week when they, yeah, that's a long time, man. I was surprised. They acquired a fintech call, and I don't know how to pronounce this. I want to say shoebox, but I doubt that's it. It's (laughs) S-H-O-O-B-X. I feel like startups have to think about, like, (laughs) people don't just write their names. People say their names. Right. (laughs) Yeah, make sure we can pronounce it. (laughs) Yeah, that looks like shoebox, but no. Oh, then. Shoebox is fine. If they get, if they yell at us, We'll blame our wonderful producer. <laughs> okay, yeah. So we, we have no idea how much Fidelity paid for this okay. company. They're staying mum about it. But it's a 10-year-old company that said that they've been called Carta on steroids because they say their capabilities rocket past what Carta can provide. <laughs> I love that (laughs) sound effect. Essentially, they provide automated equity management operations, financing software to private companies at all stages. Fidelity says this is going to help them boost their offering to private companies, which I think is really interesting that it's leaning into that. Uh, And so it's like this whole thing of like these incumbents competing with fintechs, and then they now they're acquiring them because it makes more sense than trying to build out the technology, you know, that that sort of thing. So and then and also in the equity management space this week, Deal, which is a remote payroll startup, acquired Catbase. And Catbase is also a startup that is involved with equity management. They would not reveal the terms of that deal either. Unfortunately, I wish more companies would tell us some more numbers. I mean, it, it sometimes it can be a deal breaker, to be honest, but I still covered this just because it's a pretty hot space. And I think it's interesting because Deal wants to be able to help companies grant equity to employees and contractors all over the world. Okay. And it struggled with that. Yeah. Admittedly, it said that it struggled with it as a company itself trying to grant equity and then and helping its customers do so. Like there were a lot of questions that it, you know, felt challenged in answering, I think. So it, it said, you know, this solution was, okay, we're not going to try to build this out ourselves. We Catbase was actually a uh, customer of deals. They decided, let's just buy Catbase. We'll create a new product dedicated to equity management and issuance. Quickly, another reason I thought this was very interesting is that Disrupt this last year, I interviewed Rippling's CEO, Parker Conrad, who was very vocal about the fact that their new global remote payroll or global payroll offering was really, it was trying to go head to head with a company like Deal. He named Deal specifically. So I feel like this move on Deal's part was just kind of a lobbying it back and saying, take that Rippling. Well, one, I really hope you read about this for the interchange because I am so curious like what it means for all these companies to be caring about equity management today, right now, to start off the year? Like, is it a retention tactic? Is it a recruitment tactic? Like, I'm so curious what you think. But I'm also really glad that you covered it this week because I agree with you. Like, if I had to call, because we don't have numbers, I would say like the deal and cap based acquisition, that was like so much spicier to me, unfortunately, than Fidelity and, and Shoebox. Just because Deal is such a highly valued company and Catbase, I'd heard of it as somewhat of a star and also a buzzy company before Deal even had its eyes on it. So, you know, it shows that it's not just, we don't know how much these deals went for, but I'm imagining 
just in terms of like the energy around them, it doesn't seem like a soft landing for any company. They're ambitious. Yeah. Also, very quickly, before I forget, one thing that I also thought was very interesting was one of the cat-based co-founders told me, he admitted that part of the appeal of the of being acquired was he. this is a challenging environment. And I think he saw it as, okay, rather than trying to go out and keep raising money, this is a good exit. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, because I earlier, well, I guess not earlier this year, new year. Haha. So last year, <laughs> I remember I was going back and forth with a company who I'll remain unnamed because we may have already talked about them on this podcast about an acquisition. And I was telling them and I was like, I get why some companies don't want to disclose that information. But I was like, in a funding environment like we're in now, no one's just going to assume that it was like a positive, everyone's happy type acquisition unless you give us the numbers to tell us that. Because why Mm -hmm. would we? Everything's Mm -hmm. going down. Like, I'm not just going to assume this is like the shining example of like, oh, this one fun deal got through and everyone's happy. So like PSA to all of you guys listening out there, tell us the number or even a range or something that's going to help us actually confirm if this was like a positive or negative for the players involved. Yeah. Yeah. The alternative is like your company dying. And I think that's like forgotten. And I think partially because so many companies have so much venture money that they're sitting on or extending their run. We have done these layoffs that maybe we won't see them like die dramatically or admit that they got acquired for, you know, parts. But I agree with you, Becca, that like, I kind of wish we had more of a realistic pulse check on how companies are are exiting. One other thing I want to point out about this deal deal (laughs) is emphatic (laughs) that it's not trying to compete against Carta. They're saying that it's not really into cap table management. It's really looking more into the problem solving global equity. And also just a couple of other M&A deals that I saw in the fintech world. I just want to mention American Express acquired a startup called, I want to say, I always want to say Nintendo, but it's actually Nipendo. That's them leaning into B2B payments. There was an InsureTech vouch acquired level. And then talk about spicy stuff. Forbes published an article about an acquisition gone wrong. Natasha, why don't you fill in the listeners on that one? Becca, your alma mater very much showed up this week in my journalist nemesis group chats because I really wanted (laughs) to have written the story myself. But there was this great story from the tech team that said that JP Morgan acquired Frank last year, which I actually remember. It acquired Frank, a buzzy fintech startup for around $175 million. It actually happened in September 2021. And then this week, the story came out that JP Morgan claims that the founder of Frank used millions of fake customers to dupe it into an acquisition. Becca, I'm super curious for your first thoughts here and what stood out in the story because there was so much and definitely shows the negatives of how some of these fintech M&As might turn out. Yeah. No, this was really interesting to me because I always love finding out how people find out about these like instances like, oh, they lied about X. Like I'm always curious how they get to that. And this one was particularly funny because JP Morgan was like, let's send them an email. And the email like went to no one. And like, that's a crazy way to find out the company you bought was fraudulent. Like like they literally, an email, not like- You can't make this stuff up. Right. Like, oh, we found these documents or like, oh, this person tipped us off. It's like, no, they just sent an email and it went to no one. And the open rate was so low. They were like, this is fake. (laughs) This is not. And for people who hadn't read the story, the allegation is that Frank created four point. 265 million fake customer accounts had it validated by a third-party vendor. I think the CEO allegedly paid around like 18K for that. And of course, the CEO filed a suit right against them saying that the bank, JP Morgan, has manufactured a for-cause termination in bad faith, basically arguing that like JP Morgan realized that this doesn't make sense as an acquisition is now looking for ways to get out of the deal, which is just messy. 
Messy, messy, messy. I mean, it's messy, but I think it just goes back to like, I'm still shocked that there are founders out there that really think they can get away with this stuff. Like, I mean, it's just, it kills me like that they're that shameless, that they're that arrogant, that they would have no problem agreeing to being acquired for that much money, knowing that they're just full of shit. I mean, it just blows my mind. I, I, I just cannot believe that this could even still happen or go on. I think the story has to keep being reported on. And I'm curious, like, if you guys think there's any like, long-term implications to the startup environment that, you know, because we see a story of this magnitude out there, like, yes, it's not a super highly valued company tumbling down from its insane heights. But in the fintech world, Frank was pretty well known. Yeah, I think it goes back to due diligence. How was this not discovered sooner? And, you know, JP Morgan is not like a startup that doesn't have that much cash. I mean, they have deep pockets. Come on. And they take their time. I don't know how much you guys have worked yeah. JP Morgan, but they're not the fastest acting bunch. So I am surprised. I mean, let's see. There a lot. It's still allegations. It's still lawsuits. Who knows? But that kind of sums up our M&A section. I feel like that last story was a gift to balance out some of the exciting (laughs) news. But let's transition to a topic we've been talking about, I think, every podcast episode since the the year has begun, which isn't that many, but still. Chat, GPT, AI, and now Microsoft reportedly closing in on a $10 billion investment into everyone's favorite chat tool. Becca, I would love to hear what you have been seeing coming from this world. Yeah, I feel like it's feels like web three in 2021 in the sense of like, you really just like can't avoid it. I also think it's good that this rise of us talking about AI kind of brings forth some of the companies that have been building an AI for a few years, or maybe it's like an AI layer. So like, we don't think of them as AI as we think of like chat GPT. And now they're like, oh, well, everyone's talking now. Like, let's look at what we're doing too. I just talked to a founder earlier this week that does AI transcriptions for doctors. And then it uses generative AI to create like a fourth grade level summary of the appointment that it can send right along. So even if the doctor doesn't remember everything, like the AI picked it up, transcribed it, and then wrote up something in like a fourth grade reading level. I actually like that use case. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's what's interesting about this. Like, I don't know, like open AI, chat GPT. Are these going to be the things that we're talking about in AI in 10 years? I don't know. But I do think it's sort of like the tide that rises all boats. So kind of like all of this excitement around it, this news with Microsoft and stuff like that just brings excitement and momentum to the industry. And like, I like to see that. Yeah, I think, well, you know, to answer your question, like I definitely think Microsoft believes that OpenAI is going to be the leader in the space. Just, you know, due to all the rumors and reports that are going out there, I want to run through them as much as I can. And then we'll see what we can do, which is Microsoft already invested $1 billion in OpenAI in 2019. It became the startup's exclusive cloud provider. Then, of course, ChatGPT launched to the public this past November. The current proposed deal is allegedly going to value ChatGPT at $29 billion through this potential $10 billion investment. You can sense how much I'm hedging this because we don't know exactly what's happening. And I think where a lot of people are confused, me, is really like how Microsoft and OpenAI are working together. There was this chart in Fortune, Marianne, I don't know if you saw it, but I feel like it just confused me more. No shade to Fortune. I think the deal itself, shade to the deal for being confusing, not to Fortune. <laughs> right, right, right. No, I agree. I mean, it is confusing. I think one of the things that's astounding too is that OpenAI is right now not really making money off of ChatGPT. So for all this all this publicity and, and all this attention, they have yet to monetize off of it, which is kind of crazy, you know, and I guess they're going to they're going to need to get there. And also the, the confusing stuff about the Microsoft potential deal is, is the way that it's described as being structured is that the 
OpenAI actually will only could only retain about 2% in equity of the company. So, what? you know, all of this is still, yeah, that's that's what I read up her Forbes is that that this deal could net Microsoft a 49% stake and then they would get three quarters of OpenAI's profits until it recovers its investment. I mean, this is all very confusing, but then OpenAI would only keep 2% in equity. So I don't know. I mean, I'm no expert, but that just sounds like an oddly structured deal. I need a fourth grader transcription of that. Like, yes, (laughs) that's confusing. But OpenAI did begin piloting a premium version of its viral chatbot. Kyle Wiggers from our team has a really good piece on the site that we'll link in the show notes. I did want to just end with, Becca, your look at Pittsburgh and how that fits into this conversation somehow, some way. I was asked to go on a podcast called CityCast, which I, I mean, Natasha and I share the same roots of covering local startup markets. So CityCast Pittsburgh just covers that city, which I love that concept. So They wanted to come on and talk about the tech scene. They had heard companies like Fifth Season weren't doing well. Argo AI had shut down. And they were like, is Pittsburgh's ecosystem doomed? And I was like, oh, interesting. I like never talked to anyone from Pittsburgh. That sounds like an interesting thing to sort of noodle around on. And I was chatting with some people and it kept coming up that like, oh, well, AI is really strong in Pittsburgh because of Carnegie Mellon. And Carnegie Mellon is consistently ranked like the number one school for Mm. AI programs and a lot of some of the use cases of AI that we know and actively use today have somehow in some way either been come through Pittsburgh or they've been touched by someone from Carnegie Mellon. And so there's like a really big hub there for this kind of expertise and talent. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting because now every VC is talking about AI. Everyone's so interested in it that it could really give Pittsburgh startups a boost. And looking at the numbers, a bunch of really early stage AI startups raised this year, like we're talking some raising like under 100 million seed rounds because companies there aren't overvalued and companies there don't raise crazy amounts of money. So lots of VCs being interested in the AI expertise there and everyone just kind of being interested in the category as a whole right now, that could be a really good catalyst for that venture ecosystem, which like, I always love to see that. I don't know if you remember back when we were at Crunchbase News, I also did um, a kind of a deep dive into the Pittsburgh yes. startup scene. Yeah. And and was really surprised back to your point and just how much activity is going on in the city. And so I'm like you, I really love it when these kind of underrated tech hubs get elevated. I do think AI has a lot of potential for all its controversy. I know you wrote about the fact, and you guys talked about it on Monday, Natasha, that generative AI might already be like becoming a bubble. You know, I could kind of see that, but I, I feel like, you know, if there can be some positive use cases to come out of all this, then great. It's sort of like weeding out the bad players, right. right? I feel like sort of like crypto from that regard. Well, and it kind of makes me feel better about like, you know, how, like a lot of crypto people moved to Miami and that's where they were like creating. I love that it's kind of the inverse with Pittsburgh. Like the AI talent's already there. You come there and pay attention to it. Like it's not like manufactured, mm-hmm. it seems like. So mm-hmm. definitely more to come. Yeah. And the really interesting thing about it too is one VC I spoke to was mentioning that There's always been AI startups building in Pittsburgh, but he was like, the companies sometimes would leave because they couldn't source the other talent. Like they couldn't get a good chief marketing officer or they couldn't get a good CFO. And so even though all the talent was Pittsburgh based, the company would still get up and move because they couldn't attract that kind of a talent to the city in Pittsburgh. And he was saying with remote work, it's like that barrier is completely gone. Like you have your whole technical team in Pittsburgh, you hire 
all the things that they don't have a great talent pool there, have them work remote, and you can build out these full rounded companies. He was like in a way that you just couldn't four years ago. Very true. I, I want to end talking about someone behind a company that is not full rounded. In fact, it is failing. It is bankrupt. <laughs> it is all the things. Sam Substack, Marianne, you fell on the sword and wrote about it this morning. Tell us what we need to know about SBF's new media venture, question mark. Yeah, I don't know. I was surprised. Maybe I shouldn't have been, but our favorite Sam Bankman-Free decided it would be a good idea to launch his own Substack. I don't know where he comes up with these things that he thinks are good ideas. And he just went on and on in the Substack, like detailing all these things about you know, downplaying his role and the, the downfall or collapse of FTX and the bankruptcy. And point blank says, I didn't steal funds and I certainly didn't stash billions away. I'm just like shaking my head the whole time I'm reading this, thinking like with the nerve of this guy. I mean, you're, you've been arrested. You're facing eight criminal charges. You're facing up to 115 years in prison. And either you're delusional or just super, super arrogant, but like, you think it's okay to like go on and on the Substack about all these things that you supposedly did not do. This will come back to bite him. Not to keep talking about the Real Housewives narrative. Oh, please do. I mentioned on the show last week that the whole tagline of that whole season was, oh, the only thing I'm guilty of is being Shaw amazing. They used that against her in court. Mm. So thinking of him being like so public of being like, I didn't do these things you guys are charging me with, like, hmm. That didn't work out well for Jen Shaw, and I have a feeling it's not going to work out well here either. The thing that's really much like, well, one, Becca, thank you for saying that because I think other people are feeling gaslit right now being like, wait, is it just me or is this weird? So thank you. Two was like, I'm just finding it so weird that we're constantly having like attempts at bringing levity to a situation that shouldn't be treated so casually. And Marianne, your story does a good job of this, of like reminding people that he is very much being looked into and is being treated like a criminal. So it was weird to me that people are like complimenting him pleading not guilty. It's weird to me that people are like, it's just so funny. He's talking despite his lawyers telling him otherwise. Like his trial isn't starting until October of 2023. We're going to see more of this. I know we have to cover it. But part of me is just like what he's doing is working because it's being amplified, laughed at. My jokes included. It's just like, oh, I hate that we're all falling for it in a way. And I feel very frustrated by, by seeing this headline this morning, even though I know we had to write on it and it was a good story. It was just like, oh, why is it a story? And there are speculation that this is just a ploy to sway public opinion, right? In case he, this does go to like a jury trial. I think it's just one way of him trying to manipulate public opinion. It's like the Kardashians, because I was inspired by Becca. I was like, let me think of a pop culture reference to tie this to. And I was like, <laughs> the Kardashian method is like breaking news about yourself to distract from other news. And I, I don't think anyone's like, oh, we don't know what's happening with SBF, but let's talk about his flashy new Substack. But that's not not what's happening. So no one fall for it, please. <laughs> no, for sure. I just like, like you were saying, Natasha, it just bothers me. It's almost like he's like being cute. Yes. And it's like, even if you didn't do these things, People lost money in this. Like real people were affected by this. And even if you don't think you did any of these things or you really do believe you're not guilty. And I mean, of course, all of these are alleged things. So we can't obviously say for certain, even though things look likely stacked in one way. It's like you should at least acknowledge that or like look through this, approach it with that lens where it's like, yeah. even if you're not, you really don't think this is your issue. You really don't think you 
deserve these charges, it's like, stop being cute. It's not funny anymore. I think something else that's offensive is that he he kept going back to say, kind of blaming being forced to declare bankruptcy as the problem. He keeps saying things like, well, if we weren't forced to declare bankruptcy, I could have raised all this money. We could have raised all this money and all these people would get their money back. And I don't know, I think very convenient for him to say that now, right? Right. All those people lined up at the door to like give them that liquidity, which is like why they had to file for bankruptcy to begin with because they couldn't find it. But I'm sure two more weeks, someone would have totally come out of the woodwork and like given (laughs) them all that money. I'm sure of it. On that note, SBF, please stop being cute. Companies don't lie about millions of customers. And I guess we're all going to be tracking the jewel comeback story for the months to come. Becca and Marianne, thank you so much for being on Equity with me this week. Everyone else, we will be back on Tuesday because we are off on Monday. The US is off on Monday. But don't worry, you can always hang out with us at Equity Pod on Twitter and use code Equity for 50% off annual passes of TC+. It makes us look good. We're always all writing there, especially Becca. So yeah, more to come as always. Chat soon. Equity Fridays are hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter, Natasha Mascarenas. TechCrunch senior reporter Becca Skutak and TechCrunch senior reporter Marianne Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Picovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks so much for listening and we'll be back next week. 